Tomo Nakayama is a singer and songwriter, most often found singing on stage to fans. But during the pandemic, the ability to play live shows and our ability to gather evaporated. Quarantined apart from his family, Tomo found himself filling his time like a lot of us did by watching Netflix. He found comfort in watching episodes of Shinya Shokudo, or Midnight Diner, a TV series focused on a late-night diner in Tokyo that tells the stories of its customers and their colorful lives through focusing on the signature dish that they always order. These aren't sushi dishes, they're Japanese comfort foods, like chicken cheese katsu, yakisoba sandwiches, omurice, and tonjiru, a savory pork and miso soup. In fact, it's this miso-based dish that the master makes in the opening sequence of the show. At the end of each episode, the main character narrates how to make their favorite dish, while the master breaks down each step in a quick cooking demonstration. And it got to the point where I had watched the whole series like four or five times. And it was so like comforting. Like I, I knew the stories and what was going to happen. And <laughs> so then a lot of those dishes I wanted to like recreate at home, you know. And I think that was kind of like the impetus for my curiosity in cooking. When the pandemic took away the concert stage, it pointed Tomo towards the kitchen, inspiring curiosity and discovery, and a new way of expressing himself. This is The Blue Suit, a podcast about the commonplace things that touch our lives and the uncommon people that transform them into something remarkable. I'm Shinyi Pai. Today, Miso. Culturally specific foods have the ability to pull long lost memories to the surface of the mind. Consider the aroma of the fresh baked madeleine that once inspired a French novelist to write hundreds of pages about a search for lost time. Then there are the flavors that speak to the essence of a culture and its cuisine. Take miso paste. As a seasoning, it's been fermented. It doesn't need to be combined with a dozen other ingredients or flavors. Its basic nature is complex enough on its own, so much so that it's foundational to the Japanese diet. It reminds me of, of home, you know? Just like every Japanese household, I think, wakes up to the smell of miso soup in the morning. Miso is a basic ingredient in Japanese cooking made of soybeans that have been ground and fermented. It comes in red, brown, and white varieties, which all vary in complexity, age, and taste. People who are really into it, they can tell what part of the country it's from by the flavor, or they'll identify really strongly with it. That's their like childhood flavor. And so everybody claims that theirs is the best. This specificity of taste is something Tomo remembers from a trip to visit his family in Kochi, the region in southern Japan where he was born. My cousin's wife said that when she first married into the family, the family's rice didn't taste right to her. Because she came from the mountains, 
and the family that she married into, they lived by the ocean. So like just from being so close to the salt water, there's just like a slight amount of salt in the flavor of the rice, which like I wouldn't be able to tell, you know, but like she said, yeah, I don't, it took me years to get used to that flavor. <laughs> so subtle. Yeah, it's so subtle. And, and um, in Japan, they call it kodawari. It's just, it shows um, care for each ingredient and like where it comes from and how it was grown. Tomo's go-to brand of miso is from Tosa in Kochi. Well, okay, so I'm opening. Tomo brought a plastic tub of miso to our conversation to show me. A square container with blue and black Japanese kanji characters printed mm. on the packaging. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's got this slightly funky uh, uh, fermented, you know, uh, scent to it. Inside was a thick brown paste with the consistency of smooth peanut butter. But there's so many layers of... Well, in Japan, it's called umami, right? Um, what, what is umami? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know the translation of that one. Yeah, it's, you know, it's that flavor. In, like, umami is that, like, kind of depth of flavor mm. that... Um, we don't really have a word for, I guess, in English. What is something that is umami? Like you were, you if you were eating it and you were describing that flavor or that character to someone, mm. you know, what has an umami kind of profile? Uh, like mushrooms, um, cheese. Cheese has a lot of umami, you know. It's that kind of like... Complexity. Complexity, uh, depth, the thing that like lingers in your on your taste buds. Have you ever like made your own miso? I've heard that like really aged old miso can be quite delicious. Like once Etsuko Ichikawa brought me some food when I was like recovering from a surgery and mm. she she told me like this is from a 10 year old miso. And wow. it, you, you know, it's like it almost made me wonder like, is there like a vintage to these things like, you know, vinegar or soy sauce or wine? Yeah, that's probably true. Um, I, I have no idea, <laughs> you know? <laughs> So, like, I'm Japanese, but I, I grew up here most of my life. So I'm, like, what they call a 1.5-generation immigrant. I have the memory of of my homeland, but, like, for all intents and purposes, I'm an American person, you know? So I feel like I'm just in this kind of, like, um, limbo zone sometimes where I'm just, I don't feel quite at home, like... Um, either here or in Japan. I don't know where my home is really, but like I got I got homesick for Japan. Homesickness is one way to talk about it, but it's almost more like a longing for what's absent, which is pretty much an ongoing condition for people of the diaspora. A nostalgia or feeling for something that may have never even existed beyond the imagination. A lot of the knowledge I have of Japan and the culture is just th from a foreigner's perspective, right. I think. From you know? a distance. Yeah, a little bit of a distance. So it's it's been sort of this like backward search uh, for my identity. 
Food can be a complicated and shame-fraught experience for the kids of immigrants. What we eat pegs us instantly as one of the crowd or someone who doesn't belong. The school lunchroom is where that drama plays out. I remember when I was a kid, my mom would package up these really traditional meals for me, like in like a recycled aluminum tin with like a soy sauce egg and like stewed chicken and daikon. It was almost like an Odin stew. And, you know, the other kids were coming with their peanut butter sandwiches and their like disposable brown bags. And, you know, they'd turn up their noses at what I would bring. And that was like my bento box moment as a kid of like, you know, food shaming. Yeah. Did you see that show uh, Fresh Off the Boat? Yeah. There's that first episode where the kid goes to the grocery store and sees the aisle of, uh, what is it called, Lunchables? And <laughs> it's all glowing. And uh, that resonated with me so much because I remember feeling just that lure of like the boxed lunch. And it was so exotic to me. And like, yeah, my Mom was making me rice balls and stuff like that, and kids would kind of uh, go, ew, you know. Yeah, that's a very <laughs> universal thing, I think, among among Asian kids growing up. But it is funny now how, how much I just uh, really wanted to eat Lunchables. <laughs> it's, it's not very good, is it? But, yeah. The unprocessed foods that we grew up with may seem like a deep source of embarrassment. But in reality, an ingredient like miso can be incredibly versatile. It can be used in salad dressings, desserts, marinades, braises, and stews. Miso can be eaten, cooked, or raw. It's even made its way into fusion cuisine and non-Asian cooking. And in this way, there's a place for what was once embarrassing to become a source of pleasure, even pride. It's not unusual to stray from the foods that our bodies were most familiar with as young people because our palates become acculturated to other tastes. But an ingredient like miso, which offers both comfort and complexity, has that power to take us back to another self through its pungence and redolence. It's worth savoring on its own, though that appreciation might come later in life. The shock of the pandemic led Tomo to seek out what was comforting, like familiar Japanese television shows and simpler flavors. During the pandemic, I also watched a lot of Midnight Diner like Tomo, but instead of recreating recipes like chicken fried rice or Japanese pork loin from the show, I was drawn to returning to the flavors of my own childhood, prepared with the tools that I had at hand. I spent a month perfecting a bowl of rice porridge made not on a gas stove, but in a slow cooker. I recreated a version of my mom's pickled garlic cucumbers using Korean gochugaru pepper flakes and tamari. I ate my homemade pickles at breakfast and dinner, just like my mom would, and thought about my mom a lot while I ate them. I also started making miso soup for breakfast. The early days of pandemic, with its long stretches of unstructured, unfilled time, gave Tomo an opportunity to explore his curiosity, and cooking was one of the only things he felt like he had the energy to do. I was just so exhausted all the time. I'd just wake up and I'd just have no desire to play music, even... And so I think I put all my creative energy into cooking. Pre-pandemic, Tomo didn't have a strong connection to cooking. His relationship to cooking unfolded over time. When he was a kid, his mother took care of the food prep. He'd help out when she asked. Washing the rice, that was my job. <laughs> yeah, it's an easy always, thing. Well, yeah. Yeah. But it, but it's it's also hard because you have to like keep your hand in this cold water for 
<laughs> five minutes or something and keep rinsing yeah mm-hmm. but you know she did she did that mom thing where you're like she's like oh the rice tastes so much better when you rinse it you know like you do it so well and i, and I was like yeah totally but that was just her jedi mind tricking me into like doing chores <laughs> cooking takes confidence In his 20s, Tomo found himself buying bags of frozen vegetables from Trader Joe's because it felt somehow less intimidating. Relating to ingredients in their unprocessed natural form takes some getting used to. And the pandemic made plenty of space for that kind of relating. I remember like the first couple weeks of lockdown, the International District was kind of a ghost town. Nobody wanted to go. And people were like throwing rocks through the windows and stuff. And there was a lot of kind of fear of uh, being Asian, <laughs> you know. But I wanted to support those uh, businesses. Tomo picked up ingredients from Uwajimaya and local businesses in the Chinatown International District. He made Japanese recipes that felt comforting, like omu rice and tamago yaki. As he got more adventurous, he branched out, cooking recipes from a Japanese recipe website, and he started to make things he'd never attempted before. I talked to the fishmonger, and I asked him about mackerel. It's intimidating because it's a whole fish, and I don't know how to cut it. But he said that he would fillet it and clean it and gut it and everything for me. And so I went home and I made this um, miso stewed mackerel which is like a flavor that I really love, but it's a very like fishy fish. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's, you know, has a strong scent. I wasn't able to like cook it for other people. But now that I had my own space, I I didn't mind making it really stinky, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So I tried this recipe and... um, and it's so simple, but it's, it has so much depth of flavor. Tomo photographed his home-cooked meals, sharing them with his other homebound friends, a distance potluck. It was a way to connect and check in on one another. And then I kept noticing that, like, the recipes over and over um, would just call for those elements, you know? Miso, sake, mirin, and dashi are the foundational ingredients of everything in Japanese cooking. That's kind of the secret I found. It's not that complicated, you know? It's just like these like three or four ingredients that kind of unify everything. Tomo's efforts paid off. He was able to recreate recipes from his favorite eateries that he could no longer visit, like miso black cod from Maneki, Seattle's oldest sushi restaurant, which is legendary for its obasans, grannies that host and tend bar. You know, it's a very slow, long process where you just gotta like marinate the fish for three days in sake and miso and soy, sugar, The cooking itself isn't that hard, but it's just the waiting, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) anticipation. That felt very, very magical to be able to create that experience in my own kitchen. Cooking takes perseverance and practice to arrive at a level of sophistication and understanding of how to fuse together different ingredients. In this way, it's not at all unlike music. Is there a relationship between cooking and creativity, you know, cooking and songwriting? 
when I first started cooking, it was just following the recipes and um, doing it step by step, the, exactly the way it was written. Um, but then once you um, kind of gather those, gain those skills and understand like the basics of how a song or like how a dish is made, it just becomes a part of you. And then you're able to just sort of spread out and kind of add your own flavor to things, you know? Knowing that the character of miso is umami allows you to build depth into a dish and to ultimately improvise with it. The harmony of those ingredients, like one can't really work without the other, you know? Or when, when those come together, it's like bigger than the sum of its parts. When we allow ourselves to look more closely at what's familiar, we have a chance to clarify an understanding. The Oden stew I was ostracized for by schoolmates is a dish that I now share and enjoy with my husband and son for its salty and bitter flavors. There are other tastes besides sweetness. Recognizing all of the qualities that make up our own sensibilities is a part of coming home. I think before the pandemic, I was getting really caught up in just working all the time and trying to make as much money as I can and, and, and constantly playing shows and just sort of in this like hamster wheel or something, you know? And the kinds of shows I'm playing and the people I'm playing for and the kinds of songs I'm creating, I want them to like uh, resonate with my own values. You know, when I was in my 20s and kind of starting out in music, it was dominated by... Um, very, um, you know, indie rock uh, scene, which which tends to be very insular and very um, very white, really. So I was trying to fit into that mold and, and trying to find my place in it, you know. I'm envious of younger artists coming up today because they're so in touch with their roots, with their heritage and their identity and they they make that a central part of their art you know which i think is really beautiful and so that's been inspiring for me to watch as someone who like spent a lot of my youth just trying to fit in and assimilate and i don't think i have to do that anymore you know which is a really really great feeling I mean, I'm on the radio talking about mackerel. That's, that's <laughs> how weird is that? You know, that never would have happened when I was a kid. So, <laughs> yeah. Check out our show notes to find out more about Tomo and his music. Next week's object is vitrified glass. Do you have a special object that you hold close? Share it with us on Instagram. Tag at KOW and use the hashtag BlueSuitPod. The Blue Suit is produced by KOW in Seattle. Our host, writer, and creator is me, Shin Yi Pai. Whitney Henry Lester produced this episode. Jim Gates is our editor. Tomo Nakayama wrote our theme music. Our production team includes Michaela Giannotti, Tio Popescu, Hans Twite, Melissa Takai, and Brendan Sweeney. Special thanks to the Windrose Fund for their financial support. 
If you like this podcast, KUOW has a lot more great audio for you. Search KUOW in your podcast app and see what piques your interest. Thanks for listening. Hi, KUOW Shorts listeners. I hope you enjoyed the blue suit. We're sharing the first three episodes of this series here in the Shorts feed. To follow the rest of the series, search for the blue suit in your podcasting app. Coming up, we'll have a story about an old caliphone playing records left behind by Japanese Americans during their incarceration in World War II. The story about the art of paper folding and a Chinese-English dictionary passed down from father to son. And a story about a blue suit worn by a congressman on January 6th that's now sitting in the Smithsonian. Again, you can follow along by searching for the blue suit in your podcasting app. We've also got a link in our show notes. Thank you.